0: Well, let's uh, let's pray and get started here. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, the spring and the promise of new life and a reminder that uh, you indeed give new life. When all appears to be dead, you, you uh, do your magic and work and uh, bring things to life again. And we thank you for the seasons. We thank you for uh, the opportunity for us to come together as your people to learn, to grow, to mature. And we pray your blessings on our study this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, This is our sixth lesson on teenagers. And uh, we're going to take a break here uh, starting after this Sunday. Uh, Roy's going to teach for a few weeks starting next Sunday. And then I'll come back, Lord willing, when he's finished and pick up with a a few more lessons, a few more things that I'd like us to cover on this subject. But... uh, we have talked about several goals that Ted Tripp, uh, excuse me, Paul Tripp, Paul David Tripp in his book Age of Opportunity has set before us, and today we're going to be looking at the fifth one. The first four were f- that as we raise our teenagers and prepare them for life, we want to focus on the spiritual struggle. Number two, develop a heart of conviction and wisdom. Uh, number three understanding and inter- teaching them to understand and interact redemptively with the culture and number 4 last week we looked at developing a heart a heart for god in your teenager and today we want to talk about preparing teenagers to leave home uh, i want to begin by reading a poem that i've always liked uh, it's by garrison keeler it's called mother's poem It says, uh, some mornings I get up at five with four to mother, one to wife. I find the hours from light to dark are not enough to matriarch, with goals for matriarchy high among the apples of my eye. This little girl with golden braid expects her toast a certain shade. Her scrambled eggs must meet the test of excellence and gently rest upon the toast and not beside. The little boy wants his eggs fried Yet not be greasy on his lips, accompanied by bacon strips, fried till they resemble bark. The older boy takes his toast dark, and if his golden eggs should not be poached and served up steaming hot, two slightly liquid yellow bumps of yolk in solid white, he slumps down in his chair and has a mood. The oldest girl eats rabbit food (coughs) berries, nuts, sunflower seeds. Leaves and stems, and as she feeds, she is displeased. It's all my fault. I bought her seeds containing salt. And worse, some juice containing sugar. She glares as if I were a crook, or worse, a mother short of sense and guilty of child negligence. Negligence in the name of love is just what we should have more of. Don't mother birds, <clears throat> don't mother birds after some weeks of looking at those upturned beaks, deliberately the food delay, hoping to hear their goslings say, what are these feathered floppy things attached to us? You think they're wings? This helpful, trusty, friendly Frau is starting her neglect right now. The clothes you counted on to leap up while you were fast asleep, and washed themselves for you to wear, have let you down. They just sat there. The bicycle you thought would pick itself up when the rain got thick, the homework you forgot to do, assuming I would tell you to. My child, you have been betrayed. The world you thought was neatly made, its corners tucked in like a sheet, is uncomposed and incomplete, For years, I carried on a hoax. I made you think that scrambled yolks or poached or boiled or fried or shired are how they came out of the bird. I made you think that big dust balls tiptoe softly down the halls, out to the trash, that your wool skirt, the one with emblems of dessert, took a cab down to the cleaner in answer to a court subpoena. No matter what you've been told, the rainbow holds No pot of gold. Babies aren't found under rocks or in Sears Roebuck catalogs. Those coins weren't put there by an elf. The tooth fairy is me myself. The Easter bunnies make believe. Cows don't talk on Christmas Eve. The moon is not made of green cheese. And eggs don't come the way you please. Served by hens on silver trays and neither does much else these days. So I thought that would be a good way to talk about how we prepare our teenagers to leave. Remember, we are called by God to raise adults. Our goal is to work ourselves out of a job. Uh, we want to see them leave home, and we seek to send young adults out into the world to live for God to be both salt and And light. Therefore, our goal is to prepare them, to equip them, and to equip them to leave. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. And so, emancipation from home is an important and godly goal. Clinging, domineering, and grasping parents, frankly, are pathetic. It's uh, an indication that they are insecure themselves. They can't let go. That's Their whole identity is caught up in having to do it all for them rather than training them to do it for themselves. And so God has prepared us uh, to, uh, has called us to prepare our children to become meaningful contributors to the kingdom of God. As we read in the poem, baby birds were meant to fly, and our children are meant to fly. Unfortunately, we don't have to look very far, perhaps at the nearest college or university campus, to see a whole bunch of unprepared teenagers. Um, they, these were the kids who at 15, 16, and 17 were telling themselves and others that they can't wait to get away from home. When these children leave, they don't say, thank you. They don't leave because of the rules. In most cases, they leave because the relationships with their parents have become adversarial. Parents, in their desire to get their teenagers to do what is right, allow their their own bitterness and anger and lack of a forgiving spirit to end up corrupting the whole relationship. They forget their own experience uh, of the shepherding, Love of Jesus Christ. It was while they were yet sinners, parents, while we were yet sinners, that Christ died for us. It was His goodness, His kindness, that led us to repentance. It is His grace that overpowers our sin. And so while He never, ever approves of our sin, He never just simply looks the other way, nevertheless, his love preserves the one who could never have earned, um, his, earned his own righteousness. We could have never been good enough. And so Tripp suggests um, uh, four verbs uh, for parents to remember, and these will be fairly quick here. Number one is Accept. We must greet the sin of our teenagers, the sin of our teenagers, with the accepting grace of Christ. Remember, grace is unmerited or ill-deserved favor. No matter what they've done, we love them. We don't despise them. We may be angry at them. We may justly be angry uh, because of what they've done. But we may not, we cannot, we must not forget that we love them and extend the grace of Christ. This acceptance holds God's standard high. That's part of the love, too. We don't lower the standard, keep the standard high, but in the context of the hope that is found in the cross of Christ. So no matter what's happened, the redemption is what we're after. It's what we do next that matters most. The second word he gives is incarnate. Christ was called to do what? He, he became a man in order to reveal the Father to us, to reveal God to us, and we are called to reveal Christ to our children. We are His representatives. We are part of the body of Christ. We reveal His love and His patience and His gentleness and His kindness and His forgiveness, and we respond Uh, He he did that for us, and we respond then to our children in the same way in order to show them what's been shown to us. Third, the third word is identify. Hebrews 2.11, For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Jesus was not ashamed to be one of us. To become a man, to walk among us, to rub elbows with us, to get down with us. He condescended to become one of us. Jesus went through the harsh realities and the temptations that we do. If Christ can identify with us, how much more should we be able and work to identify with our teen- teenagers, to be sympathetic? put ourselves in their shoes to try to see the world. Even though we have been teenagers ourselves, sometimes we, I think, certainly that's a fact. We were were 15 or 16 or 17. But we do forget. We do forget what that was like. Or we trivialize it because, you know, you think about how, you know, if you were a teenager, you can see this. If you look at a a three-year-old who's having a, a meltdown because their toy just broke, or their balloon got out of their hands and floated up into the air. And it's easy for us to look at that and say, oh, it's no big deal. But it's a big deal to them. And now they may need some correction. If they're throwing a fit, they may need a spanking. They may need some correction and instruction and help to understand we can get another balloon or uh, to provide some opportunity to help them see this in a better way so that as they grow older, they too come to see that, It wasn't that big a deal. But it was a big deal to them then. And likewise, when we're dealing with our teenagers, things that are not a big deal to us are a big deal to them. And us just telling them it's no big deal, get over it, is not sufficient. We have to have some... Aren't you glad Jesus doesn't say that to us? Just just get over it. Stop your whining. Stop your complaining. No, he says, come to me with your request. In fact, he knows what we think before and what we need before we ask it or even think it. He is so in tune with us that he's already ahead of us. And then the fourth verb he, he suggests is the word enter. Christ entered our world and we must enter the world of our teenagers. Again, you were once that age but have forgotten. Therefore, we must spend a lot of time asking good questions and actually listening. How many times do parents say to children, teenagers, listen to me? You're not listening to me. Well, are you listening to them? It takes both. If they say you don't understand, then ask them to explain what needs to be explained so that you will understand. Parents who have done these things will not have teenagers who are trying to get out of the home as soon as they can. So what does maturity look like? Maturity is a lifelong goal. God is at work bringing all of us to maturity. Sometimes the Bible uses the word perfection. That would be ultimate maturity, right? To be perfect, to be complete, to be full-grown. So that's where we're headed, to be perfect. And so God is at work, and we're told in Philippians 1.6, He that began a good work in us will complete it. Until the day of Jesus Christ. Your teenager will not leave your home as a finished product. That's important to remember. No, they're not there yet. They still have a ways to go. But they're going to leave before they arrive. Yes, sir? About what? I'm sorry, I'm having an Oh, listening. Sure. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks for letting me illustrate that. <laughs> hearing and listening are not the same thing. <laughs> yes? Uh, and and it, actually, we did just illustrate that. Hearing and listening are not the same thing. Sometimes what we're doing is we're hearing, but we aren't listening. We're not paying attention. We're, we're so anxious to get our point across that we're unwilling to even consider the perspective or point of view of someone else. One, one good way to know if you're listening is to say back what the other person has said. Are you saying this? And so you put it in slightly different words, or you paraphrase. Are you saying that uh, you're feeling um, uh, like your friends are not going to like you if you're not able to go with them and do this, or is that what you're afraid of? Uh, you can. I'm, there's all kinds of ways, again, you get... And then they say, no, no, that's not what I'm saying. And then they they may say, this is what I'm... So you want to engage and create this conversation that means that you're not just anxious to uh, get your pointer finger out and tell them what you want to tell them, but you're actually willing to enter in. Now, again, they may tell you something that you think that's ridiculous or that's uh, immature, That's uh, but again, not just crushing people, not just putting them down but either helping them see. Now, I will say this as you're dealing with teenagers, particularly as they're learning this process, there will be times when you have listened and you do understand and you still say, no. But why, you know? And then you say, what? You can always go back at times when you need to and say, because I said so. That's what God does, right? He doesn't. God doesn't explain everything to us. He explains a lot to us, though. So. But any other ideas, you know, welcome any other uh, input there on this subject, because I do think listening is very critical here. We have a tendency to not do that. Yeah, Nathan? That's right. One of the things that's critical is we, I think I mentioned this, it may have been one of the groups that we were in recently, but you've heard me say we have something to learn from everyone, but we tend to think, okay, young people you have a lot to learn from older people because they've lived longer, they're wiser, they know more, so you should be asking questions and listening. And then I, I might tend to think, well, yeah, I don't need to listen to a 15-year-old because I was 15 once. I know what a 15-year-old thinks. But you know what? As I said earlier, I'm, I've forgotten what a 15-year-old thinks. I'm, it's been a long time since I was 15, and I wasn't a 15-year-old in the year 2018, and I wasn't a 15-year-old in this culture, I have some things to learn from 15-year-olds if I'll listen and not assume. So I think that's a, a really powerful and important point. Um, so your teenager will not leave home as a finished product. We do want to, however, plant the seeds of maturity in them. And then who, does, who helps them grow? You know, we plant, we water, and God gives the increase. And again, I'll come back and say, do not stop praying for your teenagers. Don't think this is all about you doing this, this, and this, and then we get the product. It's God who has to multiply the loaves and fishes. He has to take your feeble works, parents, and he takes that, and by his grace, he uses that to to do amazing things in their lives. So um, I want to, uh, let's see, very quickly here, focus, let's see, where we are on time. Um, I want to just jump over to something here, to the daily fruit of maturity, because this is the most critical thing here, and I want to be sure we have time for it. You need to know what the practical fruit of maturity will look like so that you can evaluate whether your sons or daughters are ready to make their break from your home. Remember, maturity is primarily your responsibility. It's your job to teach it. It's your job to model it. But two things prevent it. First, overzealous parents who will not allow their children and teens to assume responsibility and make mistakes. They are the micromanagers, They or else they want to do everything for their children. Stop it. You're not helping your children. That's a, Remember, we talked about the idols of control and the idols of success. Second, and this is very important, immature parents... The second problem is immature parents who are stuck in their own childhood. Especially fathers, but some mothers who are still 15 in many respects. Your teen's maturity cannot rise above yours. Remember, your children are a product of your training. So... As I go through these and we talk about evaluating whether your teens are ready to leave home, maybe you ought to ask, am I ready to leave home? Maybe I need to back up. Maybe I need to uh, revisit some of these very things that I want to see in my teenager. So first, again, these are from Trip, uh Daily Fruit of Maturity. Teenagers, if you want to be treated like adults then these are the qualities that you need to demonstrate. So pay attention. Number one, acceptance of personal responsibility. A maturing teenager will be, begin to step away from the idea that life is supposed to be fun and enjoyable all the time. Please entertain me so I won't be bored attitude. Um, you've heard me say, boys work to play, men find pleasure in their work. And your sons and daughters, if they're maturing, will begin to find satisfaction in their God-ordained responsibilities. We might say they would take pride in their work, in a good, using pride in a good sense there. They would care about it. They'd want to do a good job. They'd want to finish a job. And it would matter to them, not just because you're not on their case, But because now it's become something that gives them pleasure in and of itself, doing a good job. Common excuses of the immature. And again, this is unfortunately not limited to teenagers. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot. In the Bible, frequently forgetting is a sin. Thou shalt remember the Sabbath. Thou shalt remember that thou was a bondsman in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. It's a sin to forget that. And it's not that there aren't times of legitimate forgetting, but not there's not near as much forgetting as there is the the excuse of forgetting. The willing forgetting. Part of your job is to remember. And, And so when you forget, that is an excuse. Oh, I thought I already did that. Most of the time, that's a lie. Um, I didn't know I was supposed to. I guess I misunderstood what you said. Anybody ever hear those? Anybody ever say those? That's more important. Maturity begins to develop a reputation for being trustworthy and dependable outside the home. What do the teachers say? What do friends say? What do neighbors say about your teens? You can count on him. He was a pleasure to work with. He worked hard. She, she, uh, she, she went above and beyond what I expected. There should be several areas of growing acceptance of personal responsibility. At some point, they need to certainly be internalizing their Christian faith and maintaining. Uh, or excuse me, uh, responsibility for their relationship with God and taking responsibility for maintaining healthy, productive, and God-glorifying relationships with other people in their lives. This would include their own parents. Uh, certainly their siblings, friends, neighbors, teachers, and authority figures outside the home. You say, well, i got a teenager, and he's having problems with a teacher. And so are you handling that for them? Are you teaching them how to go sit down and have a, an adult conversation with that teacher and solve that problem? Um, you shouldn't have to intervene in all these. You know, when they're little kids, what do you do? When brother and sister have a conflict, all right, come here. Give the toy back. Say you're Sorry. Okay, no, say you're sorry. Look them in the eye. Okay, and you have to, you have to direct them. You should do that. You're, you're training them what to do, but at some point they need to be doing that all by themselves. If you're still doing that for them when they're teenagers, uh, stop. Tell them what, you can certainly say, Here, here's what, if I were you and I was having that problem with my teacher or with my friend or with my mom, uh, Here's what you ought to do. Once you go to your mom and say, Mom, I love you, but, um, what happened yesterday, could we sit down and talk about that? You don't, it doesn't always have to be mom doing that or dad doing that. You can do that. Your teens, that's a sign of maturity. That's a sign that someone's growing up, is they take responsibility for relationships. They must be growing, uh, there, excuse me, there must be they must be growing in a responsible attitude also toward work and productivity. Work is not just an evil interruption to our pleasures. Hard work produces its own pleasure. God created work as part of a perfect or a mature life in a, in a perfect and mature world. In other words, work was there before sin came in. Work is not punishment. Number two, applied biblical convictions. The maturing teen will erect their own moral boundaries. You've been teaching them about boundaries and wisdom and what's right and what's wrong. You've been teaching them the Bible. But now they will begin to do this. They won't always need a lecture as they walk out the door about what's right and what's wrong or else. You better do this or else. If it always has to be done that way, then they are not ready. Uh, if they're maturing, they will want to do what's right in the sight of God. You won't feel like you're living with someone who's always inching toward the edge of the cliff or someone who's always kind of operating in the shadows. Teens who live with conviction prove that they can be trusted. They make hard choices even when their parents are not present and wouldn't even know. They tend to hang, and by the way, they tend to hang out with other people who who do the same thing. Uh, They are not hiders because there's no reason to hide. What they desire, decide, decide, and do can be done out in the open because it is consistent with the will of God. And by the way, this is why there are so many new apps and so much social media that have been developed to help hide communications and behavior for everybody, but it's especially marketed toward teens. So you can send messages that just disappear uh, after a few seconds so that you don't get caught. If your teens are engaged in that kind of stuff, you've got a real problem. They are not ready to leave home. Number three, an approachable, teachable, seeking spirit. So much of this has to do with attitude. Um, They're not going to be perfect in all this. That's not what I'm saying. But you ought to see signs of this. You ought to see reasons to think we're moving in the right direction. Teens who are getting ready to leave home will recognize what's before them and will want help and preparation to get ready for that. They won't be intolerant of conversations about what they're doing. Uh, They won't get defensive when their choices are questioned. They won't distance you with non-answers or be impatient and argumentative. And they won't turn friendly discussions into unfriendly debates as soon as the subject touches on their behavior and choices. If we are relating to our teenagers in a godly way, if if parent let I me mean, emphasize that parents, if you are in fact relating to your teenagers in a godly way, not in a harsh, abusive or uh, uncaring way, but if you are doing what you're supposed to be doing, something is wrong if you constantly feel like you're walking on eggshells when you're around them. Oh, I better not say anything. they'll get upset. So you end up not saying anything, because you sure don't want them upset, right? There's something wrong. Mature people are approachable. They will not only be approachable, they'll actually seek out your advice and wisdom. When's the last time your teenager came to you and said, Mom or Dad, I need some advice. I need some of your wisdom. Can't decide what to do. I've got a dilemma. I need some help. There would be a great sign Because now when they're off at college, now when they have moved out and they're living on their own and they run into a problem, guess what they're going to do? They're going to probably pick up the phone or they're going to go see somebody and they're going to get some counsel and some advice and not just wing it. That's a sign of maturity. There's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. Number four, accurate self-assessment. Maturing teens have an increasingly accurate view of themselves. They'll have a sense of their strengths and weaknesses that will guide their choices in relationships and responsibilities. Do they seek out mature or immature friends? Who do they want to hang out with? Um, You know, when I see... uh, Look... I want to encourage, like in church and everywhere else, that we should be interacting with people of all ages. But, you know, if you see, uh, uh, let's say, an 18-year-old who likes to spend all his time with 14-year-olds, there's something wrong. Not that they shouldn't be sometime interacting, but, or if they just hang out with, you know, I think the the, sh- the biggest sign of this and I see this in in guys more than I do girls most often, is they just want to be silly all the time. They want to cut up all the time. It's always a joke. It's always always a game. There's never or, or rarely a serious interaction, a serious conversation. It's always about just having a blast. They'll have a growing sense of where they are susceptible to temptation if they're maturing. They won't overreact when you point out a weakness that needs attention because they've already recognized their weakness and their need for help. Notice humility is a part of this, teachableness. uh, We're not looking for teens who are perfect, that is totally mature, who do everything right all the time. We're looking for teens who are mature enough to realize that they're not finished yet that they haven't arrived, and that they don't know it all. Since they have an accurate view of themselves, they're able to receive the help that you're there to offer. Number five, uh, this is, there, there are five of these. The fifth one is proper perspective on things. It's naive to think that our teenagers can breathe the air of this materialistic culture without taking in some of its values. That's true for all of us. Uh, We should look for signs in our teens of inordinate preoccupation with material things. Do they express, uh, i got to have that attitude frequently? Do they have a short contentment span? Uh, Do they uh, tend to evaluate people by how they look or their clothes and so forth? Maturing teenagers will be thankful. Boy, there's a, a critical word. That's a good sign of maturity, gratitude, thankfulness for the things they have, but will also be learning that life doesn't consist in the abundance of their possessions. So there's a few guidelines, a few things to look for, a few things to work on. Those are all good things to have conversations about, too. It's not just sitting, sitting back and looking at a distance and giving a grade, but if, if somebody's falling short here, that means you, parents, have some work to do, some interactions, some conversations, uh, again, not just lectures. And so we all know that our teenagers won't live with us forever, at least we hope they won't, um, and God wants us, as we said, to work ourselves out of a job. He wants us to be his instruments to produce mature adults who are ready to face the world to be salt and light. And we also need to face the fact that we can't give them what we don't have ourselves. And I I don't want to gloss over that lightly. That's really the most critical thing. Do our lives contradict our message to our teens? Do we communicate to our teens that we too are people in the process of maturing? Do your children want to be like you? Tripp writes this, Do our teenagers respect the lives that we lead? Do they consider being like us part of their definition of successful living? Do they say within themselves, I live in a world where much is wrong and much is fake, but my parents are genuine. I don't always like what they say to me or what they ask me to do, but I want to be like them. Do our teenagers look at us and see truth, love, grace, faithfulness, and hope? Do they look at us and see Christ? So, questions, thoughts, input on this idea of leaving home? Concerns, whatever. Yeah, David. Sure. Let me go back to these. Um, Number one is acceptance of personal responsibility. Number two, applied biblical convictions. Three, an approachable, teachable, seeking spirit. Number four, accurate self-assessment. And number five, a proper perspective on things. Yeah, I think it's both. I mean... We can, you can teach a parrot to say thank you. It's not, we do want to teach that. We do want to teach the right, you know, to say, learn, teach them to say please and thank you. Those are good things to say and to say frequently. But obviously, like worship, if worship is rote and not from the heart, then it's not pleasing to the Lord. So we require outward conformity, sit up straight, pay attention. Can you sit up straight and not pay attention? Well, of course. But sitting up straight and looking at someone is, you're more likely to pay attention if you do that than if you're under the chair and looking the other way. So the body language, uh, the, the words we say are important, but they're not sufficient. Uh, they're necessary, but not sufficient. What's What we're after is always the heart. Not just say you're sorry to your sister. How about be sorry for what you did? Uh, and so digging down, always going to the attitude. And so an attitude of gratitude is seen in a cheerfulness. Thankful people are happy people. They're not scowling and grumbling and complaining and whining. That's not a, that's not a person full of gratitude. And so you, you, you deal with that also. When you see expressions of ingratitude, that's another opportunity to correct and instruct. Um, and to help with that, so I think that's a, dis, a lack of contentment. Is a David was that you and I? You were talking. Was it Goldberg's book you were talking about that's coming out? He talks about conservatism is really rooted in gratitude. Right? Is that what he was saying? Um, that what you you don't want to conserve a world that you despise that you are not thankful for. And so when you're ungrateful, you want to throw off everything around you. You're always, you think the world owes you something all the time. And if you want to see a a world of ingratitude, just look around you. We live in it. In fact, that's, uh, our cultural addiction to blame and how you can cure it. Everybody's blaming everybody else. I'm unhappy and it's your fault. You don't do enough for me or you hadn't done enough for me lately. Well, if you think about it, if you, we talked about this I think last time. If you grow up in a Christian home and you've been at church and you had a home and you had three meals a day and you get an education and you got clothes and you got some toys and you got health care and you got all this stuff and it's been given to you all your life. Uh somewhat like the poem I was reading, you know, the eggs just and the toast is just appears on your plate and it's magic and it's so easy to take that for granted because uh, we're so surrounded with the blessings and gifts of God, and I do think that sense of of uh, what we call liberalism, the idea of, of uh, we should just all give everything to everybody all the time, wouldn't that be great? Um, but when you realize that the nature of a gift is that I don't really deserve it, it's not something that I've earned, it's given to me. And that creates a spirit of gratitude. So I do think as we get older, there's a tendency to realize that, that mom and dad, that those clothes and that house and all those things they gave, what what I didn't see when I was a kid was how hard they worked and how exhausted they were when they went to bed at night and how much they worried and prayed and cried and and, uh, did it over and over and over and over again. I would say God, thankfully, usually doesn't tell us how hard something is before we do it. (laughs) Uh, Otherwise, we probably wouldn't do it. But most of the hard things we do turn out to be great blessings. But certainly having and raising kids is one of the hardest things anyone will ever do. Uh, But kids don't see that. So I agree with that. I think there is a tendency as we move along. But that's, again, part of our job is to help them see that. And by the way, that's also why you tell them no. Uh, not just to be mean, uh, but to teach them you don't get everything you want all the time when you want it or the way you want it. Sometimes doing without is a blessing. Yes, sir? I think we just say one, one barometer here. Grateful people are happy. Ungrateful people are not. It, and, and they're not happy because of external things it's the attitude an attitude I think that's when Paul talks about learning contentment it's something has to you have to work at and learn you have to talk to yourself you have to be told don't forget to be thankful that's why we you know pray over our food uh, it's not and it, that can become rote too but why are we praying over it because it's a gift and we're not just beasts we're not just eating at a trough uh, it's a recognition that, uh, I think Capon writes about this, the food that we have, the, the beauty of it, the taste of it, the smells of it, uh, the textures of it is just surely God's goodness. He could have just given us Purina human chow, you know, in pellet form. Hey, you know, if all, if all it was about was nutrition... He could have done it that way, but he didn't. He, he just lavishes us with goodness just because he wants to. And when we stop seeing that, we become ungrateful, and we become animals instead of image bearers of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for our families, our children, for the parents who are laboring so hard day and night. Bless them, encourage them. Help them, strengthen them, grant them your wisdom, and we pray for our children and our teenagers that you would be at work in them, in their hearts and their lives, to cause them to love you and to, uh, to grow up and be great uh, servants in your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.